0: Whenever they say headshots at work, I always think body shots, and I feel like i I'm immature.
1: So whenever they say headshots at work, I imagine they mean like a sniper is involved?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's what I think, too. First-person shooter.
0: Oh, that would be a great thing to submit for your headshot, though. It <laughs> like a big red splatter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Hey, Prague fans. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prague Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I am joined by Craig and Lee. We are three friends and Prague aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and the personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show, as well as on our fancy spancy homepage at up3show.com we put other multimedia content and other ancillary things out there if you'd like to reach out to the show you can hit us up via email at up3show at gmail.com and if you just can't get enough of the show don't forget to hit the subscribe button over on our podcast page at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts this makes sure that you never miss an episode and helps other prog fans find the show Oh, man, I love talking to you guys, as we are always want to do. We'd like to go around and catch up. So, Craig, I'm going to start with you first tonight. What have you been up to since last time?
0: You know I've been doing a buttload of music. I don't know if I told you I did a, a solo piano gig at a coffee shop. Yeah. No. I don't remember I you saying did, a uh, coffee shop. Yeah. Well, yeah I, uh, actually, it was supposed to be me and uh, James, the guy I play bass with. But he couldn't oh, mind. And He got oh, yeah. COVID. So uh, he wasn't able to come. So it's like, you know what? There's this great app called iReal Pro that has every jazz standard known to man stored on it. Uh, Basically, James is out of a job is what that
2: I think that's awesome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so I played for about an hour and a half. The same people that were there when I got there uh, were there when I left. And I'm not sure any of them paid a nickel for any additional drinks or anything like that. So I don't know how coffee shops make money is what I've learned from that.
1: Yeah, you know, and I agree with that because I'm a coffee shop fan myself. And mm-hmm. most coffee shops have the attitude of, I just occupied a seat for six hours and I bought a blueberry muffin. Right. I don't think the economics of that work out the way you think they do. They should charge
0: by the hour. Yeah. The other thing is this other band that I play with, it's kind of like a jam-ish band with a young woman singer-songwriter, her name's Tilda. Mm-hmm. We played the party last Saturday night. We're kind of an improv band. Oh, nice. What we did is Tilda collected slips of paper from people with random phrases. And me and the other three musicians would just start vamping on some chord progression and she would make up lyrics and then make up a song on the spot.
1: Wow. That's really awesome.
0: That's impressive. Mm -hmm. It was a cool concept that she came up with. We executed it and it did not suck. It was a lot of fun. That's cool.
1: That's really cool. Here you go. How about you, Lee? What have you been up to since last time?
2: Working away at the brickyard, breaking rocks, you know, the usual. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: Working for Mr. Slate.
2: But I've been spending a lot of time in the studio the last couple of days and decided to take Friday off. So I'm going to lock myself in the studio over the weekend and make some progress on a new tune I'm working on.
1: Nice. That's awesome.
2: Yeah, it's going to be part of a trilogy that goes along with Inviolate that we did last year. So
1: Nice. That's real, I remember you mentioning that.
2: Yeah. So carving off enough time to get that done.
1: Cool. How about you? Mostly just doing the same, just doing the work thing. But um, I did take a pretty extended road trip to California. So I got a new car in the end of September. It's an EV and I wanted to stretch its legs and see how it really does as a road trip car. And I needed to go to the Bay Area for work anyway. So I just went down to LA, saw some friends, then drove up to the Bay Area listened to a lot of music, and visited two of my favorite CD shops. I visited CD Trader in Tarzana, California. Shout out to CD Trader. And then while I was in the Bay Area, I went to our favorite, Rasputin Rasputin. and Campbell. Uh, Shout out to Rasputin. And picked up a bunch of stuff. In fact, what I'm listening to right now, which we'll get to in a minute, came from the Rasputin Hall. That's mostly what I've been up to. So as we circle back around, Craig, what have you been listening to since last time?
0: I have been listening to. It's going to be a surprise. A lot of felonious monk. Woo! I've crossed the Rubicon. I've been listening to the last couple episodes, and I feel like I say jazz as much as Tony says Arion.
1: Yeah, and see, you did. So I'm it. trying you, not you to. You mentioned Arion yeah, before yeah. I did. Yet again. That's,
0: that's twice. Does that done. count?
1: That's two months in a row.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, sorry about that. I'm feeling self-conscious. But anyway, <laughs> I finally got to where I like Thelonious Monk because his playing is a little bit discordant, more so than just normal jazz.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: He's the guy that says, you know, if you hit a wrong note, hit it three times in a row and just say it's part of the song kind of thing. <laughs> it's a doublet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he hits a lot of wrong notes and some people say it's sloppy. But once I got over the hump, it beca- it's like an acquired taste. Hmm. Well,
2: Alan Holdsworth, man. That guy was accidentals all over the place.
0: Same thing. Yeah. So it's been a really fun experience. If I'm working on something for work and I'm not on a call, you know, I just stream a felonious Bunk album. It's kind of like the fact that it's a little bit discordant makes it easier to do work, too, because, like, my brain doesn't latch onto it.
1: Nice. And what about you, Lee? What have you been listening to?
0: I am
2: listening to Screamnasium, the new album by ORK. Nice. Yeah, this is an interesting band with LEF on vocals, Pat Mastelato from King Crimson on drums, Colin Edwins from Porcupine Tree on bass. Mm. Scream Nasium is the fourth album, and I am actually kind of surprised to find it reminds me a bit of Alter Bridge. Mm. So, listeners, if you're fans of Mark Tremonti or Miles Kennedy, there are songs in this album that really have an Alter Bridge vibe, and I'm really enjoying it. So, I'm recommending it so far.
1: Nice and for my part i've talked about this a little bit in the past i usually go into rasputin with something i'm looking for but i always try and find one thing to take a chance on the thing i took a chance on this time is a band called echoes of eternity specifically their album the forgotten goddess from 2007. this is a prog metal band female fronted out of la and i am really really loving this band it's sounding a lot like a more aggressive hybrid of Dream Theater and Seventh Wonder. Whoa. And really liking that.
2: I'm going to have to try that.
1: Want to get more into it a little bit more. I want to go find some of their other albums. The other thing, so here's my area on bingo. As we record this right now, tomorrow morning... Arian tickets go on sale for their next live shows that will happen next year in 23, which I am planning to go to. All you have to do is mention Arian and I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm going to go listen to all the stuff again. But this time I'm not listening to Arian directly. I'm listening to The Gentle Storm, which is this double album Mm -hmm. of hard rock version and a traditional instruments version of the album. It kind of has a jazz vibe to it. If you are coming more from the jazz side of it, you can start with the gentle version of the album and then go to the storm version of the album. But if you're coming from the metal side, you can start with the storm version of the album and then expand. It's just a really, really cool album. So yeah, that's what I've been listening to. Cool. With that said, uh, Lee, you usually hit us up with news and new releases. What do you got this
4: month?
2: Yeah, so you covered the Arion live. Catatonia is on tour now in North America with the Ocean Collective backing them up. And I am super stoked for that. I'm going to see them November 22nd. This is going to be one of the bands off of my bucket list. I've always wanted to see Catatonia live. Mm-hmm. And then just yesterday, Catatonia announces a brand new album coming out January 20th called Sky Devoid of Stars. Ooh. And they are previewing this with a new single, Atrium, which I am thoroughly enjoying.
1: I haven't listened to that yet. What are Jonas's, uh vocals like?
2: Yeah, Jonas Rinksa vocalist he sounds just as strong as ever. To me, this is a continuation of City Burials, and the quality is just up and to the right, so it's great. Cool, Riverside, and a shout out to Abdul Al, one of our listeners. We will cover your request shortly, so stay tuned. But yeah, Riverside has announced a new album coming out January 20th called Identity, and they have premiered it with a track called I'm Done With You, and this is also very strong stuff. I really like this track. I read in an interview that they went back to rehearsal space to write before going in the studio, and I think you can tell it in this single. It sounds much more like a collaborative written song, not COVID isolation kind of written songs.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Band Zio has announced a new album called True Waves, and if you've never heard of this band, this is very similar to Earthside. Uh-huh. It's a group of musicians that don't have a permanent vocalist. So they enlist the help of outside vocalists, and the list of guest vocalists on this next album are definitely some of the stars from Prague. Eric Gillette from the Neil Morse Band, John Mitchell from Frost, Hayley Griffiths, Gabriel Agudo. Mm -hmm. This new album will come out in spring of 2023, and supposed to be a very heavy concept album. Vola has announced their first ever North America tour Yeah, with the band Earthside opening for them, which I'm super excited about. The bad news is all the dates announced so far are East Coast. They come as far as Ohio, but that's as far west as they go. So,
1: Yeah, you know, as the listeners will hear in this episode, we talk about this. It's easier to do the East Coast than it is to do out west.
2: Absolutely. But Earthside, man, I just can't say enough good things about this band, even though they only have one album. I may try to find a way to do a bootleg about Earthside, because you guys all need to hear about Earthside. Great band. Mm Mm-hmm. Taria Tarunin, former vocalist for Nightwish, has announced she's going to release a best of called Living the Dream out December 2nd, including some previously unreleased work, one called Eye of the Storm. And Flora Janssen, current vocalist for Nightwish, has announced she's battling cancer. I saw that. Yeah, she said she was going to go under the knife, but she also said her prognosis was good, so our thoughts are with you, Flora.
0: Best wishes. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Gleb Kolyaden, the keyboardist for I Am The Morning. If you've never heard Gleb Kolyaden, go out and get something now because he is one of the top ten keyboardists in the world, in my opinion. And he is releasing his third solo album coming out November 4th called The Outland. New Threshold Dividing Lines coming out November 18th. And Richard West, the keyboard player, has announced his new book, his autobiography, Maybe a Writer, My Life in Threshold. And Richard West is a busy guy. He just also announced a new band called Oblivion Protocol. They just got signed, and they are working on a concept album called The Fall of the Shires. This is a follow-up to Threshold's The Legends of the Shires from 2017. And listeners, stay tuned. We might have some more interesting Richard West information coming out later in the season. And then Rain, Pattern Seeking Animals, Kairos, and Haken all have new albums. In post-production, with no release dates yet.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much, Lee. Yep. And this has actually become one of my favorite parts of the show. Let's let Craig tell us about something unheard of.
0: It's unheard of. It's unheard of that I came up with an idea that's stuck around this long. <laughs> I enjoy doing this because so far I've done somebody from Siberia, a bunch of guys from Great Britain, a woman from New Jersey. This month we're going to travel to Venezuela. Ooh. We're going to feature a singer, songwriter, keyboard player, a fellow named, and I know I'm going to butcher his name, phonetically, it's Leo Carnicella, could be Leo Carnicella. You know, this is stupid, I should just find out from him how to pronounce his name.
5: Hello, thank you very much for the interest. My name is Leo Carnicella.
0: Awesome. Shout out to Leo, how's it going? You reached out to us on Instagram, and I hate to say it, but it was almost a year ago. Uh, I did tell you that we were going to uh, feature you, and we finally did. And he was born in Caracas, Venezuela, We're or originally self-taught. Before we start, uh, Lee, I want to show a picture from his electronic press kit here.
3: Can you see that? Yeah. Yeah. And on the eighth day, God created Mellotrons.
4: <laughs> and I want that shirt.
2: I'll get it, and I'll draw a big red <laughs>
1: circle
3: and a uh, line bar here. through it. So we're on a Zoom call. That's right.
0: Uh, Leo's wearing a shirt that says, and on the eighth day, God created Mellotrons. Uh, Lee doesn't like Melatrons, so we give, him, we give him shit about that. No, he's a keyboarder. I do
3: not.
1: Um, yes. I think for Christmas, I'm going to get you a shirt with just the Mellotron logo.
0: I think for Christmas, I'm just going to get you a Mellotron. Go go for it. I'm sure I can get a lot of cash for that. I'll just get you the BST. How about (laughs) that? Uh, Yeah, Leo plays a lot of Mellotron. This uh, first clip does not feature Mellotron. This first clip features some sort of Spanish sounding stuff that I thought would be kind of cool. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was
2: kind of I cool. I like
4: that a lot.
2: That's an interesting mix of instruments. There's a lot of that yeah. kind of thing throughout
0: his stuff, but that one kind of caught my eye. It's like Prague with flamenco guitar at it. Yeah, exactly.
2: I
1: before exactly. we got to the flamenco guitar part, I was like, oh, this has a good Wakeman sound. His and then, keyboard playing
0: yeah. throughout is really distinctive. Sometimes it sounds like Wakeman. A lot of it sounds like Marillion. Sometimes there's some Keith Emerson sounding stuff. I mean, he's really very accomplished. So he started out self-taught. He uh, then went on to study music theory and Caracas. Then he moved to Europe and started writing songs. In the uh, spirit of huge cojones, in 2020, he sent a bunch of material to British bassist Tony Franklin, who has played with just about everybody. One of his big claims to fame is the supergroup The Firm. Back in the 80s, he was the bass player. And he uh, started working with him, helped him out. And uh. He ended up playing on an EP called uh, New Dawn. So he's kind of got an informal band. Tony's on bass. He's got a drummer from the Philippines named John Vincent Velaz- Velazco Velasco. Sorry, John Vincent. Jan Vincent, butchering everybody's name. Uh, guitarist from Venezuela, Marco Ciargo, and mixed by a fella named Mark Winfield. So let's listen to the title track of that EP until a New Dawn.
2: That has a very Marillion sound to it. Doesn't it? Yeah.
1: New Marillion. Yes.
0: He then went ahead and did a full album of songs, which was just recently released online. Features Tony Franklin again, the same drummer. And this time he worked with a Uruguayan guitarist named Beledo. But there is also a certain guitarist that I'm not going to tell you, but we'll listen to a clip and we'll see if you can guess. It's not really a concept album, but one of the songs is like a 13-minute suite, and the lyrics are based on the effects of DMT, which is a kind of a hallucinogenic, psychotropic drug.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: We're going to listen to the suite called The Place Where Lost Minds Go, and uh, let's see if you can guess the guitar player. any guesses? Not really. No. Did it remind you of anything?
1: The track in general did.
0: Yeah, I like that track quite a bit. It sort of reminds me a little bit of Thick as a Brick. It's Martin Barr? Yeah. Is that right? How cool is that? Wow. I thought that was pretty impressive. And he plays on this 13 minute song. He's all over it and it smells like Martin Barr. Wow. Really really neat. So there you have it. Leo Carnic. Sella, Carnicella, and dude, I am really sorry. You know, one of the best things about this
2: segment is just you butchering names.
1: I know, it's kind of become a thing, right? (laughs) You know they do like Instagram Reels? 30
0: seconds of me butchering.
1: Yeah, like these 30 (laughs) seconds of you just like stumbling over people's
0: names. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I'm going to start only doing people from Utah whose last name is Smith. There you go, right? (laughs) We're to <laughs> you know, Leo Smith.
5: My name is Leo Carnicella. Leo, dude, I'm
0: sorry that it took so long for us to butcher your name, but hopefully we did justice to your music. Good stuff. He doesn't tour, but he's got plenty of online presence. He's on Instagram, Bandcamp, YouTube. Check him out.
1: We'll put all the links in the show notes. Yeah. Yep.
0: Back to you, Tony.
1: Well, thank you once again, Craig. Let's go over and let's talk to our friend, Mike Andreas so you guys may remember during july of this year i went up to new york for a motorsport week of all things and then as i was biking around town in new york city i got this notification on my phone that there was going to be a jordan rudis show in town and i messaged lee and craig and of course they said you got to go dude yeah must go So I went, knowing that Jordan Rudis did solo shows, but not knowing necessarily what to expect. And the way that this venue, City Winery, is set up is it's this huge amphitheater room with dining tables, and you just sit down at a table, and you reserve a specific seat. You don't really know who's going to be at your table. And so I got there really early and was having dinner, and then Some hooligans showed up and we struck up a conversation. And Mike, that we have on the show today, was one of those hooligans that showed up. And I honestly don't know what was more exciting for me the virtuosity that I heard on stage or the really great conversation that I had with Mike and his friends about all things music and Prague. And because I'm a metal guy, we talk about metal. Tony, you didn't know Mike ahead of time, right? That's absolutely correct. We had never met. You like picked him up at the concert. Yes, he was very much like a hooker in that way.
0: <laughs> okay,
5: got it. Right. I, I was a New York floozy for you, wasn't I? <laughs> Mike was easy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Mike was very easy. Um, So <laughs> for long-time listeners of the show, one of the things that we have talked about is wanting to get people from the community on the show, right? People that are actually working or doing things. And so as I talked to Mike over dinner, I started to learn that Mike's got this metal band and Mike's got this prog band and they're in different states of evolution. Would you say that's fair,
4: Mike?
5: Yeah, I mean, the, both bands have been around for years in the New York scene. The metal band has done more touring, and, and we've toured mm-hmm. the country. We've been up to Canada. you know. Mm-hmm. That We've done a lot of things in that regard. The prog rock band has done a lot more around New York in particular mm-hmm. and done more cool and unique things in New York. Like we did a show at Gantry National Park. Anyone who knows New York, that's Long Island City right across the water from Manhattan.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: I didn't even know this was a thing they did. One of the guys said, hey, you want to do a concert in the park? And we got the approval from the city. And we're like, yeah, absolutely. And we had this beautiful concert in the park. You know, That's great. That's awesome. Yeah, there are different facets of what we were able to do with both bands so far.
1: You just touched on one of the things I really wanted to bring to the conversation today, Mike, which is this aspect of touring. In addition to being a metal geek, I'm also really super interested in, like, how the sausage gets made, whether it's (laughs) production, which we've had interviews with people that do production, or now, like, brass tacks, like, what does it take to be a band and and tour and support the band? And that's really what I wanted to talk about, Mike. Sure. Sure. So I wanted to start by asking you, how did you get started in music? Did you have a music school background? Were you just one of those kids that started hacking at home? What brought you to music and to do this kind of
4: music?
5: Growing up, I was more an art kid. My mom always played music. She was like a folk guitar player. She was, you know, into Emerson Lake and Palmer and all these things. She was always playing her guitar around the house. And from a young age, I was interested in what she was doing And when I got into my early teens, I actually, I wanted a drum set, but I got a guitar. By that point, I had been listening to some metal. That's kind of my upbringing, was more of a metal upbringing as opposed to like a straight prog upbringing. But there is a lot of prog influence in the stuff that I listen to as well. And the funny thing is, actually, at that time in New York, we're talking early 2000s, nobody wanted to play metal at all. Everybody wanted to play punk.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Really? In the 2000s?
5: Yeah. I was like, maybe I'll try to join a punk band and see if I can convince them to play a metal song or two. (laughs) That never happened. I ended up putting together my own band that eventually became the metal band that I play with now, which is Martyred.
1: So let's take a listen to a sample from Martyred. This is from the track, The Keeper Full. And what I really like about this is this has a very progressive vibe to me in this intro, and I just love it.
2: Mike, can you give us a breakdown of who all's in your bands?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I'm Michael Andreas. For Marty I play guitar, we have another guitar player. His name is Michael Kittos, so two Michaels. My bass player is a guy named Brian Nichols, and my drummer is Rickston. He actually plays with a few other bands as well. He plays with Terriginous, which is another prog metal band. They're based in New York, and they're phenomenal. I would definitely advocate checking them out. He plays with Immortal Suffering, which is a death metal band out here, and they've got a very big name. And then, of course, my singer is Mr. Aaron Pollard, that is martyred. And the other, the prog band is called You and I. were named after the Yes song.
0: Ooh, nice. The best Yes song.
5: And uh, it's myself on bass. My buddy Eric that Tony met that night, who may or may not have uh, masturbated to a Nick Virgilio concert. <laughs> <laughs> who among us
0: hasn't been there? Come on.
5: Right. I, I mean, Nick Virgilio, how could you go wrong? He plays the keyboards and He sings. And uh, there's a Mr. Andrew Ramsing is the drummer. He's a guy I've known for so many years, one of my closest friends. We have a lot of history there. He used to work for Eddie Trunk, actually, and we used to get tickets to a lot of the local New York shows through Eddie Trunk. Nice. Oh, cool. With him, I saw a lot of bands. We saw Y&T, uh, Overkill a bunch of times. And there's Greg Giordano, who I believe is, <laughs> is still playing guitar with us. It's kind of a long story there, but he's a, he's a very good guy and absolutely amazing guitar player one of the best musicians I've ever had the pleasure of playing with. And that's the guys that are through uh, the two bands that I'm I'm playing with right.
1: So let's listen to a sample from NUI, and I. And this is from the track Trapped in the Atmosphere. I love this track. It's really dynamic. And I think that this particular sample really captures the vibe of the band that really sticks with me.
3: Trapped in the Atmosphere
1: Awesome. And we'll put links to all their socials.
5: There are other projects beyond those that I can't talk about yet. Those are the ones that are primary right now.
3: Cool.
2: Very cool. Very cool. And the, the siren in the background really makes it
3: very authentic. Cool, yeah. like, it gives <laughs> you a lot of credit. <laughs> that's New
2: York City, man. No, no shit.
5: Yeah. Very, very stereotypical.
0: Are you in one of the boroughs? Are you in Manhattan? Where yet?
5: I'm in Queens right now. I'm in Jamaica.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, okay cool. Okay.
5: So,
1: Mike, I know that in some of your different bands, you have different roles. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened and specifically, like, how you came to be a bass player as someone who's
5: predominantly a guitar player? Well, it was Eric. He played keyboard, and his older brother was a drummer and I mean, he actually played for some bigger bands, too. His brother's an incredible drummer. But Eric learned a little bit of drums, and I was like, hey, come play drums for my metal band. Mm -hmm. And he played two shows, and he was like, this isn't what I want to do. And he started putting together his own music where he played piano, and he's like, I don't need a guitar player, but I need a bass player. You want to just come play bass for me for a few shows? So I'm like, yeah, I'll play bass until you find somebody. And it became this kind of fun, cool dynamic where there was no guitar. It was just keyboards, bass, and drums. And that let me play the bass kind of like a guitar where I could just kind of go off and do my own thing and be really melodic nice. and annoying. <laughs> That's how that project got started. And however many years later, it's 2022, we're probably 15 or 16 years down the line, they are still playing bass.
1: So Mike, you and I share the metal background. Both of us have that in our history. I've talked a little bit about how I came to enjoy Prague. Can you talk about how you came to enjoy Prague and, and be in that space?
5: One of my best friends that I grew up with, who was actually there with me that night, a guy named Eric, he's always played keyboard. He's very deep into progressive things. He introduced me to bands like Spock's Beard and the Flower Kings. Spock's Beard is one of my favorites. Absolutely. Like when I heard X, the album X, I was like, wow, this is. That's a great album. What brought you to that
1: one particular Spock's Beard album? Like what jumped out and grabbed you about it?
5: It was the song Kamikaze. That's an instrumental song if, I'm, if my memory stirs me right now. Nick Virgilio is a monster. Just to be able to sing and play drums and formulate the songs, you know, the way he did. And for I think the rhythm changes and everything, that just really grabbed me. And then they had songs like, I think it's called Jaws of Heaven is one of the songs on that album. <sighs> that it was just done so well. Some of the lyrics in the beginning of that song, and it was just a whole other level. You know, you're a metal guy. You're you're like solemn and serious sometimes, you know? But Prague, it, it kind of does away with that in some ways. It can be a little freer and a little more silly, you know? But this album kind of struck like a really fine balance, I felt. They, they appealed to both sides of me, let's say, you know?
1: hmm Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. I remember years ago, maybe almost 20 years ago now, when Rob Halford was coming back to Judas Priest after being gone for a while. He was being interviewed by Terry Gross on Fresh Air. And she was asking, why is metal so dour and so down? And he said, I actually don't think that it is. I think that metal is always very triumphant. It's about this epic crusade to overcome evil and be victorious. And I, I definitely see that in metal.
5: I think it's kind of funny that if you look at some of the history of the song that Halford wrote, that this guy is asking the guy who wrote Jawbreaker why metal has to be so dour. Like, some of these things are so funny, you know? Yeah. There's another band called uh, Overkill. I'm sure you guys have at least heard of them. I have. They're not so dour, I would say. They're more happy and energetic, even though they're aggressive. My singer once described them as almost like the cheerleaders of metal because they like hype you up so much. And it's not about being grim and dour. Mm-hmm. It's about being just excited and energetic and just wanting to bounce off the walls, you know?
1: Yeah, almost like the band Hymn that I've heard described as love metal. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Like they've got their logo is what they call the heartogram, where it's like a pentagram, but the top edges of it are rounded like a heart. Yes. Yeah. So at what point, Mike, did you say, This is what I'm I really wanna do? I wanna pursue music?
5: I don't know if there was ever like a specific turning point for that, but it really became almost an obsession very, very quickly. Once I had a band and, you know, people talk about drugs and chasing the dragon, needing a bigger hit. That's almost what it became like, where it was like, okay, you played at this little club and you played for 10 people. All right, great. Well, could you play at the school and play in the auditorium for like 100 people or 300 people? And oh, that's great. Hey, did, did you ever play at Lamore or did you ever play at the Continental in New York City? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, that's cool. Hey, what about BB King's Club? What about Irving Plaza? And little by little, it was just like, okay, what I can do is cool, but could I get to this level? It kind of like consumed me and still does, but I mean, in a different way now. It's a different kind of chase, I think, now than it had been at that time, where it's just, what can I do to be more than what I'm doing now? And it was just step by step by step. It was never like a snap in my head. I was like, okay, I've got to be Metallica. No, it didn't happen quite like that. But it was more like one day at a time. I was just like, I need more than what I'm doing now.
4: Right.
0: Did you ever consider not doing something in music or was it always the thing that you were gravitating towards?
5: It kind of depends what you mean when you say doing music, because if you're talking about doing music as like a financial living Mm -hmm. It's never worked out that way for me. Whatever money we've made has been way spent over going back into the band and the cost of uh-huh. you know, touring and the cost of gear and the cost of rehearsal space and the cost of you know, a million different factors, promotion. So as far as doing music and making a living, that's never been something I've been able to do successfully.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: As far as doing music and, and saying, was there ever a thought that I didn't want to do music? Mm-hmm. There were times where I felt stressed. About things I was doing, and I was like, "Do I really need to be doing this at this level?" But the the ultimate payoff from doing something that I love that much was w- so worth it.
3: Sure. Right.
5: Even now, where you know we're just coming out of a global pandemic, we've been kind of frozen a little bit, I'd say, just because of you know a lot of factors. You know, I have kids now. I didn't have kids 20 years ago. There are factors that kind of make it more difficult. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not that I'm going to stop, but I need to examine. How do I do this in this circumstance as opposed to the previous circumstance?
4: Mm -hmm. Right.
5: There's a lot of universal factors beyond factors that are affecting just, you know, me personally, a lot of things involving the way social media has grown and the way things like YouTube and streaming and things have taken so much attention away. And obviously that was there before, but given the pandemic, those things grew just so massively because there was just no other choice for a lot of people, you know? Absolutely. So there's a lot of opportunity options out there that weren't there before.
1: No, what you're saying really resonates for me. It reminds me a little bit of, I think it was like maybe 1998 or 1999. I was reading an interview with Rob Zombie. This was when they were at the height of their popularity and they were asking... What was your vector that you took to become this popular band? And I remember him saying, you know what? There was no instruction book. I just kept making whatever I could do as the next right indicated action. If this club said they'd put us on stage, we'd go do it. We had no idea if it was going to pay off or not, but we would do it. And they were literally making it up as they went along. And these days, to your point, now you've got instruction videos on YouTube. Something I want to talk about later is people like Martin Atkins have written books about being a band and touring and all of that. So there's a lot more resources for new bands. How did you guys navigate that in the early days? Were you just figuring it out on your own or did you have resources that you were using?
5: Early days for me was, again, early 2000s. which is not terribly far removed from where you're talking about with those Rob Zombie days. YouTube didn't exist yet. You're talking about all these resources, but there's a lot of resources out there of people who are just kind of talking out of their asses, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They might not have a ton of experience or they're talking about their opinion because they know that they're gonna get hit on their video and they're gonna rack up advertising revenue or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. There are definitely a ton of resources, but they need to be very choosy about what they accept because there's a lot of good advice, but there's also a lot of bad advice just because there's a ton of advice, period, out there now. Yeah. For me personally, I did read Martin Atkins' book, Tore Smart and Break Demand, I read that a little bit ahead of our first real touring days. Besides that, I had some local people that I spoke to. I had some music business industry people that I was able to talk to here and there that did help, especially once we started getting opening slots for national touring bands. Those connections were what allowed us to do that. The biggest thing I think I took away, if you want to talk about Martin Atkins' book now, it did change my thinking and mature my mindset about what it really meant to do music. Right. Whereas before, if you're a musician, you think all about the music. You know, I want to write the best song I can write. I'm going to sit here and play guitar for six hours a night. I'm going to be the best I can be at this one thing. Mm -hmm. Once I read Martin Atkins' book, I was kind of like, okay, that's very important. Obviously, if you don't have good music, there's no point in doing anything else. But it made me realize there's a lot more that has to be done. Okay, you spent six hours playing guitar last night. How many hours did you spend looking up venues? How many hours did you spend finding other bands that you could swap shows with? How many hours did you spend promoting yourself and marketing your music? Mm -hmm. How many hours did you spend putting together cool artwork that's going to attract people to what you're doing? How many hours did you spend really focusing and building yourself into a brand as much as a musician? Because ultimately, that's what any musician has to be if they're hoping to grow in any meaningful way.
3: You
1: know, one of the things that's really dawned on me over the past 10 years or so is I have increasingly heard bands refer to themselves as a small business and really running the band like it's a small business. And I think that's the big message that I got from Martin's book was that all of the things that you just said are absolutely true and they're all part of running a small business. He makes a point in his preface for the book of saying, you need to be methodical, professional and profitable as a band. Like that's your goal. Yeah.
0: I think that goes for all artistic endeavors over and above music. It's fascinating and impressive when people do that.
5: Right. Yeah. I mean, after I read the book, one of the first things I did was incorporate demand as a business. Oh, wow. I spoke to an accountant who knew nothing about anything, and he said, yeah, you should do it. I mean, a bunch of crazy kids, you're going out there doing stupid things. Somebody gets hurt. At least you're incorporated. You're not personally liable, you know? Mm-hmm. Even if you never make a penny, you're protecting yourself just on that front.
1: So in terms of time frame, Mike, how quickly after you guys started being a band, did you read the book and have this mind shift?
5: Considering that I started the band so early in my high school career, basically, you know, I started playing guitar and I started the band within a few years after that. There was a lot of time at the beginning, where it was just kind of discovering what it meant to be a musician and to be a band. Before it became something serious, there were years before it was something that was like, hey, this is actually a thing. This isn't just a bunch of kids playing around, you know?
4: Mm, right. Right.
5: What I would say is maybe more meaningful is how many years was it after I read the book before we started doing anything bigger? Mm -hmm. And I would say that that was about a year or two after, because I would say I probably read that book around 2010, I'd like to say. Okay. We did some touring after that, like 2011, 2012 on our own, which again was a lot of the same things we spoke about. I had local guys that I spoke to. I had people that wanted to be tour managers that would help us book shows and get us shows out of state. but around. I want to say 2012. I went to Nam in Los Angeles, and then 2013 was our first spot opening for a national act on tour. Which we we'd done a lot of local opening for nationals, like in, in and around New York, but it would be one show here and one show there. So after that, we went out with Ingemar Malmsteen. Oh wow! And it did help to think of the band as a business. Obviously, it helped us prepare. You're not just going to send an email or call a guy and and just be like, hey, put us on our bill. You know, they got to know who you are. Nobody knows who you are. You have to create a press kit. You have to have a compelling message and you have to have the right person giving that message to them also because they're going to be approached by a lot of people also. One of the other things I did after reading his book was look at our merch booth, which I had never given any thought to. I was like, okay, we got a bunch of shirts. We got a bunch of CDs. We show up at a club. Oh, yeah, you got a table? Yeah, perfect. Just drop that crap over there. It was almost secondary. But then I was like, wait a minute. This is what's going to pay for everything you're trying to do. This is what you're hoping to build something out of, you know?
0: Right. <laughs> it's a profit center.
5: And, yeah. And it got to where I... Spent time actively designing what did I want my merch booth to be? How did I want it to behave? How can I bring people's attention to it? So what we ultimately did was we had a small laptop and a computer monitor, and we would play back live videos of the band. You know, most of the time you're in a dark club. So you have some video, you have some flashing light attracting attention. We set up the table to look nice. We brought our own table, made sure that every night it was the same. We had wire racks where we'd have our shirts up on them. We have posters and CDs and stuff. And then on top of that, you know, we made sure that we were there at the booth constantly
3: mm-hmm.
5: so that we could talk to people and try to bring attention over there. And, you know, hey, what are you doing? Did you enjoy the show? Did you have a good time? Hey, you want a poster? Posters are free. You want, hey, you want to take a picture? Yeah, and people love it. People would get into it. And before you know it, that guy who was just kind of standing around there, he's buying a CD. And he's like, yeah, you know what? That was really cool. I like this song a lot. And, you know, it made a big difference. Right. Mm-hmm which was something that was just like an afterthought, became a major part of, you know, what we did. And also the promotion aspect of it too, to have free giveaways, have flyers, have stickers, have things that we can give people to remember that we exist.
1: Yeah, even during the pandemic, I remember reading interviews with major prog bands and major metal bands that are mostly European talking about why they don't come to the States. And they're like, we don't make any money touring. We make money on the merch sales. And so it's it's really impressive that you guys were doing that so early. Yeah. I have this snippet out of Martin Atkins' book that I threw in our notes, and I think it speaks directly to what you're saying, talking about the importance of why you have to tour and how it kind of feeds this cycle. He says, every single element affecting your career and your ability to continue is helped by touring, because the record store is more likely to stock your music and put up a poster. The local paper is more likely to review your CD or mention your show. Anyone anywhere is more likely to check you out online. He mentions MySpace, but these days it could be Facebook or Bandcamp or wherever. Any promoter in another city is more likely to give you a gig if you already have gigs in other parts of the country. I mean, it's just this perpetual cycle. And how successful were you guys, Mike, in like getting that engine going?
5: Once it was rolling, it was easy to keep it rolling. The biggest thing is just the, the connectivity. Once you start talking to people, you build up this network of people that you can call and reach out to, and especially other bands.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: I look back some of the stupidly petty things in my, like early when I was in high school, like, you know, this guy listens to the wrong kind of metal. We're not going to support his band. Everybody's playing music. You're playing electric guitar with, and you're making noise and he's making noise and he's happy and you're happy. Like, why couldn't you guys talk and be friends about it? You know, it's like a lot of things that were just very, just kind of silly. I'd like to think I grew out of a little bit. And, you know, as we moved on, that connectivity gave us a lot of opportunities to talk to other people and, and book other shows places that we've toured supporting national acts, we've been able to go back on our own and we weren't headliners, but we were part of a gig in Virginia, which is six hours away from our home. We would have no connection there if we hadn't been there and met people. We're out in Delaware, you know, just places that you wouldn't have otherwise been unless you had gone and met them and started talking to people, you know? Right. And that's funny, you know, you talk about how is it to keep it rolling once it's rolling. And that's something that, that's kind of up in the air for me a little bit right now because we've just kind of been on ice since the pandemic. We've been working on an album that's been in the studio. It's in the mixing stage now. It's been there for a while, but we haven't played since since the pandemic. We haven't been out live with Marder. Right. And um, I don't really know how it's going to react. Before the pandemic, I had a pretty good idea of what to expect. I kind of mm-hmm. knew what our draw was. I kind of knew who was going to come out. And I would have a pretty good idea of what every. Show would bring, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know really what to expect. I think the first couple of gigs out of the gate are going to maybe be a little, a little rougher. And we're going to have to just learn as we did in the past, you know, what works and what doesn't and build from there.
3: Yeah.
1: And I don't think you're unique there. I think that even major bands were trying to figure that out during the pandemic. One of my favorite bands is Leprous. I like to applaud them because I think they did a really good job having live stream concerts during the pandemic. I think everyone was just figuring it out in different ways
0: mike uh, do you have any shows on the books yet have you started thinking about getting out there or not quite yet
5: i don't have any shows on the books right now Uh, actually my singer broke his arm very badly recently in a biking accident jeez even if the album was done and everything was ready he needs a little time to heal so i haven't put anything on the books yet because i don't really know how soon we're going to be ready to just jump out and do things Mm -hmm. there are things that i've had my eye on Mm mm-hmm but it's just kind of like, like a rolling target a little bit until I know exactly when we're going to be ready.
1: So you were mentioning earlier that the trajectory for the prog band has been different than the trajectory for your metal band. And given what we were talking about, getting that machine going, what do you think some of the differences were? Was it just contacts? Like you had more metal contacts, and so that helped that band be more successful in booking shows than maybe the prog band?
5: I wouldn't say necessarily that Martyrd was more successful than and you and I. They were very different in what their goals were, and they were very different in what their wants and needs were and still are. And also Martyrd, it's always been my baby. It's been my project. It's been something that I personally have pushed to grow.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: And You and I, it wasn't, it wasn't mine like that. It became ours, but it didn't start out that way. So it never kind of had that same urgency to me that I was pushing it. Mm like, no, we got to get on the road, we need this, we need that, you know, and I I couldn't be in control of it the same way that I'm in control of what I do with the other band. So it was different. It's not that I would say in you and I was less successful. In a lot of ways, I felt like in you and I was more appreciated. The kind of shows we would play mostly around Manhattan, but we'd be playing to a lot of people and the music was a lot more accessible, I would say, to where you could play a show at a park in Manhattan Mm -hmm. and you're going to get a lot of attention. Whereas if you're playing with a metal band in the park in Manhattan, you're kind of almost obnoxious. Right. (laughs) There's a very particular crowd for what a metal band does. To me, I love it. And I feel like there's a way that it could be done that could be more universally acceptable. Metal fans are kind of fickle. Uh Metal in, in itself is kind of built on being extreme in a way. And if you're not going that direction, if you're too central, you kind of lose the core audience in a way.
1: I agree. And I think what you're hitting on is actually going directly back to the small business model, right? I try not to talk about Iced Earth too much these days with all of the crap that John Schaefer has put our country through. But I remember reading in an interview with him one time where people were complaining that Iced Earth, every album started to sound the same. And he made that same small business argument where he's like, I know what our product is. Our listeners know what the product is. I'm going to keep producing that product. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right about metal fans. They kind of get themselves in these niches, and they don't want variants.
5: Look, you can't do the same exact thing over and over again, but one of my absolute favorite bands was Nevermore, Jeff Loomis and Warl Dane. It was a very modern thing in a lot of ways, and they had this album called This Godless Endeavor. That was absolutely killer. To my ears, it was like almost perfect, what I wanted from them, what I expected from them. And they followed it up with another album called The Obsidian Conspiracy, And it was a lot less like This Godless Endeavor. Mm -hmm. And I saw an interview with one of the guys later, and they were talking about how the producer took these songs that were longer and more intricate and and kind of trimmed them down to fit that mold. And I get it. I totally get why they would do that. I mean, you need to have songs that are quote-unquote radio-friendly, songs that are going to attract people. But to me, I was like, man, if they could have taken this and made it another This Godless Endeavor it would have been perfect for me, right? for my taste, you know? But I also understand not wanting to repeat yourself. right? Uh, you talked about ice to earth. If I remember correctly, I think John Schaefer had a side project at some point, mm-hmm. I think called Angels and Demons. Does that sound right?
1: Ah, you're talking about Demons and Wizards with Hansi Kirsch.
5: And if you want to kind of throw it back again to the business example, you look at the example of Coca-Cola and New Coke. And, and what did they do? They took the classic Coke, and they replaced it with something new, which may have not even been a bad product, but because you replaced something that everybody loved, it was a train wreck. Right. If they kept classic Coke and brought new Coke as something else, they could have been okay. But that's exactly the same thing. If John Schaefer wanted to branch out to do something different, he shouldn't jeopardize what Iced Earth is, he should start a new project and try it off that way.
1: You were talking about how the producer for that one album had trimmed things. The band came in with one thing, The producer said, no, we're going to do this other thing. I'm going to mold it into an album this way, which we've talked about the influence of producers in other episodes, and I think it can be very powerful. When you're writing, do you have a mind to how it's going to translate live when you go on tour?
5: Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I'm writing a song, especially for the metal band, I'll talk about that in particular. I'm thinking about how I want the crowd to be feeling. How are they going to react to this? And then how are they going to react to this next moment? Because I don't want a song that's going to be just the same, like, dot, 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 from start to end. Mm
3: -hmm.
5: And that's not to say, uh, I'm sure, if you look at the songs I have, I'm sure I've got something that's exactly that, and I'm just sounding like an idiot. (laughs) But but what I mean is, I'm definitely considering what impact that music is going to have on the people listening. And it's funny, like, I I recall a conversation I had with a friend of mine years ago where he said he hated listening to live albums. He only wanted to listen to studio albums. And I was like, okay, but probably whoever wrote that music didn't expect that that one single recording was going to be it. They probably played that song a thousand times. Mm -hmm. Even if they play it the same way, it's not going to be exactly the same as what it was in the studio. The studio is a snapshot of what this live organic thing actually is, Right. you know?
1: It's actually interesting that you mentioned that because I remember reading an article one time about how, say in like the 40s, 50s, early days of rock and roll, I think this even came up in the Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley biopics, where the early days were you were a touring musician and you released albums to promote your touring. And then eventually that turned into we produce albums, you tour to support the album. So it's interesting how that dynamic has shifted.
5: Sure. If I had to guess, and I could be totally wrong, I think that would probably come as technology improves and how the quality of the recordings was better. Right. To where you kind of listen to some older recordings and it it sounds like it, it was recorded on a potato or something. And, you know, you go see this person live and it's just this big dynamic thing. It grew to the point where an album... Could be so polished and clear and you can hear everything and you can go back and listen five times and mm-hmm. learn something new about the song every time you hear it as opposed to live where it's just okay there they played the song and it's done you know so i guess it makes sense that as the technology grew that the recordings could become better right and i think we're probably at a turning point for that as well where there's so many other media sources of, of music now guys like ola england that are famous for being on youtube mm-hmm. and ola's awesome I check his YouTube every single day because I just enjoy watching Mm -hmm. the guy. He's charismatic. He's funny. And he's out with these bands. He's out with The Haunted and Feared is his band. But I, I think pretty much The Haunted is what he's big with right now. And they're a band in their own right and they're a big band. But a lot of people are as attracted to them because of who he is that they are to the band themselves.
2: You know, along the same lines when you're talking about the impact of technology, there was a story that you sent when we were prepping an email about a band that couldn't go on because the singer had a crashed laptop or something like that? Is that a band you knew? Or Oh, that
5: was that was just in the news. That was a band called uh, Falling in Reverse, I think. Okay, I don't know the band personally, I, I, but the, what I understand, they had a, a headlining slot at a festival. It was not a small gig. It was a big deal. And they canceled at the last minute because their laptop was lost or, or broken mm-hmm. or something. Um, and they were getting a lot of flack from it. From people like Eddie Trunk and Sebastian Bach, who were saying, like, hey, you know, you're a band. You're live musicians. You shouldn't be relying on a laptop to survive, you know?
3: Right.
5: And they threw it back at them, like, oh, you guys have been using tracks for years, and then it became a whole big thing.
3: Right.
5: I understand both sides of it. I mean, definitely, you don't want to be that guy up on stage and you play into a backing track because that's, yeah. I don't really feel like that's really a live show anymore. It's karaoke.
1: I think the technology is getting to a weird place. It's like an uncanny valley kind of place where you have all your samples and all your whatever, and you just have your laptop up there and you just play it. That's weird. But Lee and I had gone to a show here in Denver, I don't know, maybe six months ago. We went to see Haken, but there was a small like regional LA band that was opening for them. Yeah,
2: that's right. band called Trope.
1: I guess it's actually a four piece or a five piece, but because of COVID, most of the band couldn't tour. This comes back to making business decisions for the band rather than cancel the gig. The singer and the guitar player came to Denver and they just had a laptop playing most of the tracks Right. and then she would sing and he would play. And it was like this weird thing because the guitar player, sometimes he would be playing lead and then it would like morph and now he's playing rhythm live and then he would go back to playing. It was really kind of weird. Yes, it was. I mean, I, I'm sure that they made a decision from a business perspective. Like we can't give up this gig right? And technology will let us not cancel this gig.
5: I get it. I feel like that's a little weird. Did they have drums piping through the PA also? It was
1: weird. There were no live drums.
5: That to me is is a very hard point. Drums is a very exciting instrument. A good drummer is a band in himself. It's just a spectacle to watch. To have drums in a large venue like that, that aren't being played, that are just kind of playing back, it just kind of really takes you out of the experience. But I mean... Like you said, circumstances were what they were, and and these guys may have had that opportunity and and said, we can't pass up on it or or whatever, and this is how they were able to make it work, and power to them for doing it, you know? Whatever the case is, you're big enough at that point that you were going to be doing this headlining festival gig. You didn't have a backup laptop somewhere along the way. That's a good point. (laughs) That's where my head went. We bring a laptop to our live gigs with Martyred, And even within you and I now, he he brings a laptop for his synth sounds. Like, he used to have to bring four or five keyboards. That would each have their own sounds, and he would plug into his keyboard amp, and it looked cool. It was complicated. It was a, a pain in the ass to carry in and out of whatever club we were playing. <laughs> but now, because he doesn't really need more than two MIDI controllers,
3: mm-hmm. and
5: he has all of his synth patches and whatever stored on his laptop, and it takes him a second. Like, okay. This song, I'm going to have these patches ready. And if I have to switch, I switch, but I have my keys set. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next song, if he needs different sounds, okay, I can go to and it. And it makes perfect sense. There's no downside to that.
1: That's a Jordan Rudis show. He was doing that, right? That's what his iPad app is for. That's what he was using his Mac for. Like it, It's exactly the same thing. But he was still Jordan Rudis. Sure.
2: And he probably had a backup.
3: <laughs> he had
1: a Jordan Rudis <laughs> he, he probably has a keyboard
0: yeah. tech and a backup. He, and he doesn't relates. want the wrath of Eddie Trunk on him.
5: <laughs> <laughs> but for us, for Martyr, we the way we have it now, our live rig, our drummer started playing to a metronome. He has a click track in his ear, and that keeps him kind of playing to a specific tempo, and that tightens everything up. We don't hear the click track in our in ears when we're playing live, but he does. So we're playing to him, he's playing to the click, and because he's tight on the click track, we can have all of our patch changes happen automatically with MIDI.
2: That's interesting.
5: So now, that's running the show for us. If you're taking a band on a bigger level than us, that same laptop could be running all of their patch changes for them, it could be running the click track for the drummer, it could be running the lighting and everything, and if that's the case, I totally get it. If that thing goes down, you really don't have a show, your lights aren't gonna work, your patch changes are going to have to be done by somebody maybe you don't even have foot controllers you know have a spare have a backup yeah you know two is one one is none
1: as we start to wrap up here today you know you've toured regionally you've toured in the city maybe talk about some of the differences touring on your own versus touring as a supporting act wherever you want to go with that
5: we have an advantage touring in the city obviously because we're from here and we have local connections with people here and that doesn't mean just club owners i mean that means humans, just people who we know who want to come out and see us play. But the thing that a lot of people don't get, people from out of state will say, yeah, I want to come play in New York. I want to come play in the city. It's not easy. There's so, so much competition for people's attention, especially in the entertainment realm. And people have such a short attention span. It happens very often where we'll be playing and there are five bands on the bill and there'll be 30 or 40 people here to see this band. And when they play and they finish, those people leave. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be another 40 or 50 people to see this band. But when they're done, those people leave. And you can just watch the clubs just fill up and empty and fill up and empty. And other places that we've played, it hasn't really been like that, where it'll be like people come in and that's their night. They're coming, they're going to hang out, they're going to watch music. Like one of the earlier tours we did, we went out with Metal Church. And I think the first gig on that tour was Rochester, New York, And that was an experience for us because we got there and people were like, oh, you guys are martyred. We checked you out. You know, we saw you were going to be on this bill and we listened and this is a cool song. Are you playing this tonight? Nice. It's kind of like just a totally different mindset. And I love New York. New York is home. You know, I I don't ever plan to live elsewhere, you know. And I do think you have to work extra hard around New York to make any kind of a splash or make any kind of a difference. It's an advantage and it's a disadvantage at the same time.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. So
0: I'm curious if there's that much of a difference between the New York, as in Five Boroughs, music scene versus the Long Island music scene. A lot of bands that i followed over the years came out of Long Island.
5: It's definitely different. There are some phenomenal players coming out of Long Island, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. That guy Greg I was talking about earlier, if he's not the best musician I've ever played with, he's up there. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> he's from Long Island. Definitely the five boroughs. I mean, in particular, Queens, Manhattan, and Brooklyn, it's very tight-knit. Long Island is a little bit better, but because you're so close to that ecosystem, it it kind of infiltrates that mindset a little bit too. Sure. But it's kind of a balance, I guess. It it is definitely a little different.
1: Mm -hmm. So one of the things we always do at the end of every episode, Mike, given that you're just here, tell us what you think people should go listen to.
5: Well... Considering that we're talking to a mostly Prague, somewhat metal kind of an audience. One of the bands that I had mentioned to you the night we met Tony was this band called Angra out of Brazil. Mm-hmm. Their guitar player is Kiko Larero. He's now he's with Megadeth. He's a monster. But the, the, the band as a whole is incredible. I know they've played Prague Power a few times, but there's a an album called Temple of Shadows, which I think is a masterpiece. Absolutely. I would also say nevermore is one of my favorite bands they're not what i would traditionally call a progressive band but they do have a lot of progressive tendencies and i would recommend this godless endeavor
1: awesome very cool mike a big thank you to you for taking some time out of your day and speaking with us as we were planning out the season i was like i want to do something on touring i know this guy i don't know if he'll do it and i and i took a risk and i'm glad you you joined us here because we're a grassroots podcast and we try to highlight other grassroots bands when you were telling me your story at the Jordan Rudis show, I was like, here's a guy who wants to get his music going again. Maybe we can have him on the show and that'll help him out a little bit. So I'm glad that you said yes to being on the show.
5: Oh, it's my pleasure. I had a great time.
1: This will definitely not be the last time we talk. We'll talk to you again in the future, I promise.
5: Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. This is a blast. That sounds great. Anytime. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Take Good care. Luck. Have a great Bye-bye.
1: day. Bye. Bye. I hope you guys enjoyed talking to Mike as much as I did. As soon as I met him in New York, I was just like, we've got to have this guy on the show and get him in the dynamic of the three of us.
2: It's great to hear
0: him just being in the trenches and what that's like. It must have been a lot of fun to go to a concert with him and just
1: hang out. Jordan Rudis, he'd always spend like a minute or two, like setting up his next instrument, right? Every time he would do that, Mike and I would like get right back into the conversation about what we were talking about.
0: Totally picture that.
1: It was totally awesome. You know, in the spirit of how we normally end the show, I'm going to lead off with a recommendation. It's the book I mentioned multiple times. I'll put a link in the show notes, but definitely please read Martin Atkins' book, Tour Smart. Um, he's got another book called Band Smart, I think it is, basically about how to be a band. But the great thing about Martin's work is that he does it all from like running your band as a small business. And I think it really puts a lot of things in perspective. So I'll put that in the show notes. Yep, That is. As we exit, don't forget you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at UP3Show or contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and, and talk to you about whatever you want to hear from us on the show. If you want to show us some support, it's super easy. Uh, you can support us non-financially, as I mentioned, every month by just subscribing and, and giving a comment wherever you get the podcasts. That really helps out the show. If you would like to support us financially, um, you can do so over on Patreon at patreon.com slash up3show. Uh, we've got some subscriber levels there, and that helps us pay for things like hosting and the website and stuff like that. If you just throw us a few coins, uh, we'd really, really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you guys next month.
4: Bye. 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 Hey
1: folks, Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.